it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, August 17th, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you can't listen during our hours, you can listen to the podcast for free on demand every day after the show at GuyBensonShow.com. Lots of content there. Or at FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a Fox News contributor. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, host of this fine program where you can also check us out on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. On today's show, Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics will join us later this hour talking about last night's primaries and more. In the next hour, General Jack Keane on the one year anniversary of the meltdown in Afghanistan, plus Ukraine if we have time. Juan Williams will also be here in our middle hour talking about a number of issues especially whether he is still hot for Joe Biden to run again in 2024. We'll ask him about that and more. And then Tom Homan in our final hour, former acting director of ICE, he will be here to break down and analyze the announcement today from border officials that, yes, we have now reached and surpassed 2 million border encounters in this current fiscal year, blowing away last year's record-smashing number, which was around 1.2, 1.3 million, now past 2 million with the rest of August and all of September still to go. The former acting director of ICE here to react in our final hour. As we begin the program today, I want to talk a little bit about last night, although I don't want to focus on the Liz Cheney defeat or the Alaska results. We can discuss that with Tom Bevan coming up. I want to broaden things out just a little bit. I believe that for the Republicans to maximize their chances of major gains in November, this election needs to be and ought to be a pretty close to pure up or down referendum on the status quo, on the president of the United States, on the Democrats in Congress, on the ruling party and the job that they've been doing for the last one and a half plus years. The president is in the high 30s in a lot of polling. In terms of approval, he is well into the 50s on disapproval. When you look at economic approval, inflation approval, the numbers are even worse and more crooked. He's like 60, 70 percent disapproval on inflation, the number one issue. You look at the right track, wrong track number, it is lopsided. It's been upside down badly for a long time. It is as bad as I've seen it in a very long time right now. The latest Fox News poll had 75 percent of Americans dissatisfied with the direction of the country. The inflation rate is 8.5 percent, not zero percent, 8.5 percent this month, 9.1 percent last month. And even with the slowdown that they're pretending is some significant victory. Food and electricity and other major staples, rent, all were up, up and away again. You add up all of those factors and you should have 
just an absolutely perfect scenario, almost like a laboratory-designed footing for the opposition party to have a very big night. And for quite a long time, month after month, the polling was suggesting that that is exactly what we have coming our way. That was in store for the Democrats. They've earned it. They richly deserve it. And the reckoning was soon to arrive in November. Now, that, I think, to some extent at least, is still the case. I think if you look at the data, and I was reading Sean Trendy from Real Clear Politics just yesterday. I think he makes a compelling case. It is still a good political environment for the Republicans. The Republicans are extremely heavy favorites to win back the House. The Senate is more of a question mark right now. And you say, okay, well, the Republicans really have a very light lift to win back the House. That could at least stop some of the worst stuff. Wouldn't that be enough of a victory? And you could say in terms of the levers of power and the gears of government, it would be a very significant victory, whether they win by the skin of their teeth or in a blowout, just taking back control of one of those big levers of power would be crucially important. And we wouldn't want to diminish that. However, the statistics that I just relayed for you under almost any circumstance should point to not just like a ripple or modest size wave. It should be when you add it to just the historical context of a president in his first midterm election, let alone one this unpopular, it should be like 2010, 2014 level destruction politically for the Democrats. And right now, I'm not sure that we're going to see that. And part of the reason for that is the fact that we are having a big, protracted national argument again about Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump did not force anyone to raid his house, right? The FBI did that with DOJ's sign-off all the way up to the attorney general. Right. They made that happen, just pretending like it didn't happen or downplaying it so that we're not talking about Trump. Those aren't really options either. I don't know what the solution here is. And I do think at the margins on the Republican side, it probably boosts MAGA enthusiasm for people to come out and try to hold people accountable at the ballot box and try to make a change. I think there's something to that. But I also think there's something to a lot of independent voters. The kinds that swung net like 11 points statewide in Virginia and New Jersey about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, a lot of those voters who were shifting away from the Democrats, having abandoned the Republicans for a while, I think that pendulum may have swung back a little bit, not completely. I'm not predicting Democratic big victories in November, but the advantage that Republicans were building when it was just yes or no on Biden and the current status quo, it's just complicated. It's muddied by the presence again of Trump, 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 Trump all the time across all the news. I think, as I said, to some extent that benefits the Republicans on turnout, but it also cuts the other way. And without weighing in on Trump specifically, and I think many of you know where I stand on him, just as a matter of pure politics, I think in a quiet, honest moment with truth serum, virtually every single Republican running for office, with the exception of certain places where Trump is a massive asset and the base and their enthusiasm is really the whole ballgame. I think all the other Republicans out there across the map would very much like this to just be an election about Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, the economy and inflation. 
Because if that's the case, I think Republicans absolutely win big. But there's now this X factor, and it's not a little flash in the pan. And there's also this possibility, and we're hearing about it again, that Trump is actively entertaining the idea of announcing a presidential run in the next couple of weeks before the midterm. We talked about this actually on the show. I took a bunch of phone calls in July. Do you want Trump to run again? And if so, should he announce before the midterms or after? And you guys were taking your phone calls. You were split down the middle on whether you wanted Trump to run again. But you were unanimous. Every single caller said that they wanted Trump to wait until after the midterms. And I think because intuitively people understand this midterm election should not be a choice between Trump stuff and Trump drama and all the failures of Biden. It should be a referendum on the people running the country right now. That's what the election needs to be. Now, all of that is a lead up to the point that, number one, yes, I still think Republicans are going to win the House of Representatives and they could win it big. Number two, I think a lot of the polling right now is not terribly useful. And in fact, is suspect, if you look through recent years and recent cycles, summer polling is often pretty dreadful for Republicans. And where Republicans stand right now in head-to-head matchups, often bears little resemblance to where they end up in November. As people really tune in post-Labor Day, September, October, I know some people are saying it's bad wedding season for Republican strategists, and you're seeing a bunch of stories. Oh, Biden's making a comeback. The Democrats have momentum. The Republicans have bad candidates. The polling is slipping. They're tied in the generic ballot. Oh, gosh, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. If only the election could have been held a few months ago. Right. That's one of the narratives that's out there. I think some of that is manufactured to boost morale on the Democratic side and to hurt morale and dampen it on the Republican side. Do you think the media would hesitate for a second to engage in that sort of thing? Of course not. They'd be very eager participants. They hype polls that are bad for Republicans to help manifest that into reality. Now, the problem for them is it hasn't really worked a lot of the time. Maybe sometimes it works for them, but overall it has not worked. And I think back to For example, 2014, where right now the Democrats had a bigger lead. Right right now it's a tie on the generic ballot, which is generally not good for Democrats. If the election were held this coming Tuesday with a tied generic ballot, I would say Republicans will win the House. A tied generic ballot is usually good news for Republicans. They outperform. In 2014, Democrats were up by a point or two right now in mid-August on that same metric, and the Republicans won the popular vote significantly in 2014, and won a crushing victory, including netting nine Senate seats in 2014, where people were worried, are they going to blow it again because they'd blown some very winnable seats in 2010 and 2012, especially on the Senate side. The opposite thing happened. The dam broke and burst in 2014. They had a net gain of nine Senate seats. Now, they had better candidates quality-wise than they have right now. I still think the national environment is red tinted enough and could get back to being even more red tinted that some flawed, inexperienced candidates could come over the top anyway. I think that remains to be seen. But for people to be wringing their hands and panicking, and I wrote about this today at townhall.com, I think is vastly premature and forgets very recent history of polling versus outcomes. I'm not making any big, hot take, bold predictions. I'm not saying that the Republicans are going to come roaring back and win 50 seats in the House and gain four seats in the Senate or anything like that. But I also think the current doom and gloom, while it could pan out, 
is way early, ill-advised. That despite the fact that, yes, there are some concerning numbers. Like the Pennsylvania numbers are terrible. Dr. Oz has had the playing field to himself in Pennsylvania, at least theoretically, with John Fetterman, who's way to the left of Pennsylvania, out of commission, having suffered a stroke. He just came back for an event the other day. He had some struggles speaking and that sort of thing. Oz has gotten totally outspent. He's basically doing nothing. He made this really weird video at a grocery store that everyone's making fun of, and it's like he's walking around grabbing produce with his bare hands and, like, carrying it around in his arms. Like, I don't know what he's doing. There are multiple polls, including Republican polls, showing him down double digits. Same with the guy who's running for governor in Pennsylvania. Both Trump's picked guys, by the way. I'm not saying it's going to be a 15-point blowout. I think those things should tighten. But there's been a real squandered opportunity, at least in this period of time over the summer. We'll see how things ramp up in the fall when things really get started after Labor Day. Mark Kelly in Arizona, Tim Ryan in Ohio, big money advantages, spending a ton of cash. They're up against inexperienced, young, Trump-backed nominees who are struggling to raise money. And they're trying to paint them, the Democrats are, as sort of like these radical extreme candidates I think that Blake Masters is smart and has a chance to win in Arizona. I think despite his struggles, J.D. Vance is still a favorite to win in Ohio. Trump carried Ohio by seven plus points twice. But right now, things aren't looking that great for the Republicans. There's a big however that I want to get to. We'll do that next and run through a few more states that I want to highlight on the Guy Benson Show just getting started on this Wednesday. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. I said there was a but coming. And I want to just flash back quickly to 2014 again, which turned out to be a very good Republican year. The polling was looking sketchy over the summer and early fall. Tom Cotton was running for Senate down in Arkansas. The last poll before the election had him down two. There was a September poll in 2014 from CNN had Tom Cotton trailing by nine points, trailing by nine. He won that election by 17 points. So there are counterexamples that cut against Some of the doomsaying, just going back into recent history, I think it's important to bear those in mind. And we're in the dog days, doldrums of summer and August. People aren't that engaged. The fundamentals of this election still are what they are, even though there are some of these X factors that might not benefit the Republicans. Mark Kelly out in Arizona is a rubber stamp Democrat for Biden and Schumer. That's the reality. If that's what Arizonans want, they've got it in Mark Kelly. If they want to change, they have an opportunity to make that change. Georgia, I saw one poll that had Herschel Walker actually ahead slightly this week. It was a pollster I'd never heard of, but he was up by a point or two over Raphael Warnock, who's been leading in most of the other polls, albeit relatively narrowly. Brian Kemp in this same poll is up seven, eight points, which sounds plausible to me. Herschel Walker is a huge name in that state. He's running basically a silent campaign. They're hiding him. We'll see if that works. If like just the legendary name of Herschel Walker and his iconic reputation 
from his athletic exploits and heroics, if that plus the environment is enough, plus perhaps Kemp's performance would be enough to pull him across the finish line, totally plausible. But I don't know. We had Ted Budd on this week from North Carolina. He should win. Close, but he should win, even though money has been a problem in that race, and the Democrats are excited about the polls showing it close. Wisconsin, Ron Johnson should win, I think, close, but should we take any of this for granted? Should we assume any of this? I don't think so. Adam Laxalt, I think, doing a very respectable job out in Nevada. He might be the best recruit for the Republicans on the Senate side. He is giving Catherine Cortez Masto all that she can handle, and some of the voter registration numbers in that state have been pretty dire for the Democrats. New poll out of New Hampshire this week. Maggie Hassan. A majority of New Hampshireites believe that someone else should now hold that Senate seat. She does not deserve re-election. Generic Republicans are doing pretty well. Actual Republicans in statewide races with scrutiny and tons of money thrown at them, that's a different story. And I think that's the other side of the coin. Last but not least is Florida. Do we have to talk about Florida? There had not been a statewide poll for governor in that state that I had seen in, gosh, months, I think since February. Finally, one came out yesterday. DeSantis up eight. Again, that sounds about right to me. Same poll, though, had Rubio, Marco Rubio in the Senate race, down four. It's like in no universe is Rubio running 12 points behind Ron DeSantis. It just doesn't make any sense. People aren't rushing out to vote for Ron DeSantis and then saying, you know what? Val Demings needs to go to the Senate. No way. Lo and behold, a new poll comes out today. Rubio up 11, which I also don't believe. I think that's too much in the other direction. There's a lot of garbage out there right now. The election fundamentals are what they are. If Republicans and right-leaning independents show up en masse strong in November, it will be some size of a red wave. People need to keep their eye on the ball, clear out some of the noise, tune out the panic for now. These are slow news cycles where people are clinging to, I think, relatively useless polls. We're going to tell you as it is. We're not going to sugarcoat it, but we're not going to undersell it either. We try to be clear-eyed here on this show. The prize is ahead. The prize is attainable. Keep the faith. Stay enthusiastic. And this absolutely can't get done. And quite frankly, it needs to get done for the sake of the country. We can't take more of this Democratic unified control. Look at what they've done. Look at their outcomes. That, to me, is the issue in this upcoming midterm election. Nothing else. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Stay tuned. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. And joining us once again is Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of RealClearPolitics.com, at TomBevanRCP on Twitter. Tom, welcome back. Great to be with you, Guy. 
All right, let's talk about last night, Wyoming. Is there anything there that surprises you in terms of outcome, margin, any of it? No. I mean, the polls showed that she was going to lose by about that margin. Uh, she did, and probably would have been worse if, if it looks like a, anywhere from you know 10 to 30 percent of her votes came from, from Democrats who switched over. So uh, it could have potentially been even worse for her among Republicans. But no, it was it's almost exactly what we expected to happen. Yeah, I think that's right. And the she and her in question here is Liz Cheney, the incumbent who will no longer be the representative at large from Wyoming come January. She will serve out the remainder of the term, will continue in her role on the January 6th committee. And, uh, Tom, a couple things here to ask you about related to Liz Cheney. Number one is a theory that I have, because we were just talking about this on the news channel. I was on with Shannon Bream, who's in for Martha McCallum, and we're talking about her future. And maybe we can get into this. I guess she she told NBC today she might want to run for president. She's thinking about it. She wants to stop Trump in 2024. Uh, let's delve into that in just a second. But before we even get to that point, I feel like there's a category of politician in the Republican Party who actually has a chance of remaining a viable person, a viable electable Republican within the party even if they have crossed Donald Trump in some way or criticized Donald Trump or Trump has come after them in some significant way. And I think the poster child of that is Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia. It just seems to me that you can have some Trump hostility directed at you. You can have had you could have had your dust up with Trump on something, even something significant. But you personally cannot be actively hostile to Trump. That's where your future ends. And Liz Cheney obviously did not take the Kemp approach. She took her own approach. And I think one is survivable in the current moment of Republican politics. And the other one isn't. It doesn't have to be a love fest with Trump across the board in every case. But if you cross a line into open hostility toward him and toward his voters by extension, that's where I think there's a Rubicon. That's where you don't come back. I think that's right. I mean, that sounds that sounds right to me. Uh, you know, Trump has had his dust ups with Republicans while he was in office, and he would, you know, he would call these guys by, you know, by his derogatory names, little Bob Corker, and you know all these things. And then, and then a few weeks later, you know, they'd make up, and Corker'd be flying on Air Force One. I mean, it's so those kinds of things happened uh, and continue to happen. But you're right. I mean. And just look no further than the 10 Republican House Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump. I mean, eight of them, nine of them now, I think, lost. Uh, so it was, a, you know, that was eight. So eight, eight of the 10 sorry, lost or retired and two of them survived their primaries. That's right. And and so the act of, of actually, you know, voting against Donald Trump was a was an act that was in most cases uh, unforgivable by by rank and file Republicans. And so. And Liz Cheney was obviously the, the most pronounced and and the highest, uh, most visible among that group, uh, right. certainly with her leadership on the January 6th committee. So I, I, I think that theory is, is, is applicable in, in almost every instance, except for the, the two who managed to survive. Yeah. And look, with Cheney, and we've had her on this show, I think in many ways she's a good conservative. I have some disagreements with her. I tend 
broadly speaking, to agree with her on January 6th and the 2020 election. I think she's basically right about those things. You can quibble about how she decided to manifest those issues with Trump and the way that she went about this. Uh, I also think that there's something to be said in politics and sort of like one of these age old questions is the job to represent your constituents and exactly do exactly what they want or is the job to be more of a states person in her mind i think she went the latter route the former route was what people in wyoming were expecting from her and when that became just a bridge too far and, and clearly a path diverging they said okay we're going to hire someone else who is going to represent us much more closely uh, to what we have in mind. Now, part of the irony here, Tom, is uh, the newly, I guess, the the nominee, the newly nominated Republican who is a strong favorite to win that seat, hold the seat for the Republicans, was for years a pretty hardcore never-Trumper who at the Republican convention in 2016 was on Team Cruz and trying to block the nomination of Donald Trump no matter what it took. She was giving quotes to newspapers and journalists saying that Trump was a bigot who the voters would reject. And then clearly there's been an about face. Um, if you want to be cynical about it, she said, well, what I need to do to get power in the party right now is to tell Trump exactly what he wants to hear on the 2020 election and the stop the steal stuff. I'm just going to embrace it and get his endorsement. And then it's off to the races. Uh, whether that was a cynical calculation on her part or not, it was a correct calculation, and it's panned out for her. And I think at some point in the last couple of years, voters in Wyoming broadly, even some people who might not love every single thing that Trump has done or said or might be horrified by January 6th, they just said, I need someone who's representing me. Liz Cheney is doing her own thing right now. That's not us here, and we want to change, and now they've got one. Yeah, I think that's right. And she's not the only one. I mean, J.D. Vance had said a bunch of terrible things about Trump and changed his mind. Kari Lake in, in Arizona, the gubernatorial yep. nominee there, uh, yep. was a Democrat. And so, th- th- look, there have been a number of people who have had conversions, if you will, um, to toward Donald Trump. And so that's, that's not necessarily unique. But you're right. I mean, at the end of the day um, – Wyoming is a very Republican state. It's a, it's a state. I think Trump had his biggest margin of victory in all 50 states in Wyoming. So he's, it is, it is Trump country, and they wanted someone who, who would represent uh, their, you know, their feelings and uh, their opinions, their values, their policies. And and Liz Cheney stopped doing that, uh, you know, a while ago. And it was no secret. I mean, the Republican Party in Wyoming kicked her out. I mean, she was, she had been at odds with the voters of her state for a long time, and so that's why this was... Well, and thrown out of um, leadership in the House as well, right? And, and that's yeah. the thing. She, It's not like this is any great surprise to her. People were saying, oh, look, she's running these defiant ads. She knew she was going down. She's not a dumb woman. She could look at the polls and the environment for what they were, and she said, I'm going to go down swinging. I believe in this stuff, and if it costs me my career, fine. And on one level, it's admirable, I think. On another level, the people of Wyoming have to choose someone that they think reflects their values and what they want that person to be fighting for in Washington. And they decided that Liz Cheney is not that person, which brings us to the next saga in this or the next chapter perhaps in this. And this is what Shannon was asking me about, this notion or this hint or suggestion that Cheney might want to run for president. Again, she is not a delusional person and she is not a crazy person and she's not a stupid person. She has to know there's absolutely no path to the presidency for Liz Cheney. That I means it's just not happening ever. 
if she wants to maybe throw her hat in that ring, it would be in furtherance of this goal she's talked about, making sure Trump never becomes president again. I'm just not sure, Tom, how that calculus works either, because I I think a more crowded field helps Trump. I've said that before. I guess she could run as an independent if she was going to try to maybe throw the thing to the Democrats. Uh, I guess that would be a choice she would have to make. But I'm just not sure how getting into the presidential sweepstakes would actually hurt Donald Trump if that's what she's going to do, given the fact in particular that she was asked the other day about Ron DeSantis, who is viewed as an actual possible viable alternative to Trump in Republican politics And Cheney came very close to slamming the door on being able to support DeSantis either. I'm just not really sure where that goes and what the tactics or strategy there would possibly be. Well, even the idea of her running as an independent is is sort of nonsensical because there's nobody who's going to vote for, for, for Liz Cheney that was going to be voting for Donald Trump. There might be some Democrats, actually. Who you know we've heard how much they admire, but even then, um, so she would most likely siphon more votes from from the Democratic nominee uh, than from Trump, and so that would that would actually be the opposite of what she had her stated uh, desire to keep Donald That's Trump from plausible. the Oval Office. So, yeah, so I I agree with you. I don't think I mean the only thing that the only way that would make sense is if she somehow wanted to you know, try and enrich herself and stay in the media limelight and stay relevant, because that's something that she would certainly get a lot of attention. The media would give her a lot of attention, Um, but it would be a dead end. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, And it wouldn't serve the the goals that she set out. So I don't see it happening. Um, I think she's more likely to get a, you know, hosting gig on MSNBC or something uh, in the meantime, because the Democrats will, will want to keep her uh, in the limelight as long as she's out there criticizing Trump. Yeah, and I, I think she's probably reconciled herself and made peace with the fact that her political career is effectively over. You never know. Crazy things happen. But from where I sit in this moment, I don't think there's much of a future for her uh, in the Republican Party or ultimately in the Democratic Party because of her stances on basically everything. That's the other thing here. It's not like she was super moderate. She was pretty darn conservative in terms of her ideology and her voting record. And so there's kind of this this political homelessness, something that she's chosen, and you might admire her for it, you might disdain her for it, but I think that's the reality that she's looking at right now. Tom, let's talk about Alaska, a new voting system up there with ranked choice voting. And on top of that, so it's like you you list your choices from your top choice all the way down to your bottom choice, and then They sort them out. If the person at the top of your list doesn't advance, then they go to the next person on your list. It's a very complicated system. They've got it down in Australia uh, is one country that I know uses it across the board. And I have read that there's been a lot of confusion in Alaska. It's a brand new system. It takes a long time for the initial votes to come in. And then under the state law with the adoption of this new system, we won't even get the newly sorted votes for a number of weeks after they shuffle everything with, with the, you know, the listings and the ranked choice. It just seems like a, a long, complex, uh, you know, a long, complex waiting game. And at least on some level, I actually find it intriguing as an election system where you can vote your conscience, but also then not effectively give your vote away to the party that you like the least. I, I get that. I, I kind of like that. 
But I think that right now a lot of people, Tom, in this country are absolutely crying out for confidence in our elections with swift, reliable results. <laughs> and this would not be that. Right. And I mean, in theory, it's supposed to you put everybody on the ballot and, and it does away with, you know, uh, it's, it's supposed to help elect more moderate candidates. Right. So you don't have to go through a primary process on both sides. And so everybody's in the same race. And then, as you said, they go through the they go through the elimination process. But I, I think your your point is well taken. I mean, people would like to see. And part of the reason that this is going to be delayed is because they're accepting mail in votes. Right. That are postmarked. And then they're going to start counting them. And then uh, so we won't know for a couple of weeks. What's, well, what's then there's the, the complex. Then there's the complex apparatus of and the whole you know process of saying, OK, this person's top choice isn't anywhere close to the top two. So that vote goes away, it goes away and then it, it shuffles down to their second choice. And I mean, it, it is quite a process of going through those ballots and getting through the whole mechanism of it. Your final two candidates, it's again, in theory, I kind of like it in practice, especially with all the distrust and cynicism out there. I'm just not sure uh, this is the type of thing. Can you imagine, Tom, if, you know, again, people are alleging, I don't know, irregularities out there and someone seems to be in the lead, but then they're counting ballots and it's taking weeks and they're reshuffling them sort of in this process behind closed doors. It just I, I don't know. I'm not sure this is the ticket for what the country needs at the moment. <laughs> I, I agree with you. Um, I think right now, given where our system is at and and what happened in the election, the past couple elections, the, the, the questions about transparency, integrity, all of that, um, right. this is going to be problematic for, for a lot of people if it's adopted um, you know, if, if any other states try to adopt this more, more broadly. And they did it in New York City, and that counting took forever, if I recall correctly. So, I mean, it's just sort of a warning sign and maybe a cautionary tale. What we do know briefly, Tom, is there will be a Republican senator out of out of Alaska, right? The top two finishers, it, we think, will both be Republicans, the incumbent Murkowski, who's very moderate, and then the Trump-backed alternative. Uh, and then Sarah Palin appears to have, have advanced uh, in the at-large House seat against a Democrat there. I'm not sure if either of those are final or called, but at the moment, that's what it's looking like, yes? Correct. And, and you know, the thing with that race is you didn't want to finish third because, if you, right, if you finish third, you're out. And so the question was, which Republican, right, the Democrat was going to get be in the top two? And the question is, well, who is going to finish second and and who is going to be on the outs it looks like sarah palin's going to finish second there which means you you could surmise that most of the republican votes from begich he'll be out his their second choice would be sarah palin which would make her uh the winner of that uh that at-large house seat and put her um on the ballot in november so but again we we don't know that we're not going to know that for a couple weeks so uh we'll have to just kind of wait and see yep yeah, the wait and see is very much uh, the moment of at least the the order of the day for Alaska because there's a long time to go before we really have any clarity on what's happening up there. But then at some point there will be two candidates left. They'll be on the ballot in November and there'll be a House seat 
and a Senate seat up for grabs. And I think the Republicans will be either like locked in in the Senate, which is like which person do you get and favorite uh, favored rather in the House. Tom Bevan, we've got to leave it there for now. Co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics. Always appreciate it, Tom. Talk again soon. You got it, guy. Thank you. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, we talk a lot about inflation and the real bite and pinch that that has on American households and their budgets. I think in D.C. and a lot of the media class, it's just a talking point. What does it look like in real life? Interesting market assessment from Walmart, where they describe what's happening in their stores and the purchasing patterns of a lot of their customers. Quote, as the year has progressed, we have seen more pronounced consumer shifts and trade down activity. As an example, instead of deli meats at higher price points, customers are increasingly purchasing hot dogs as well as canned tuna. So cold cuts are expensive. Food in general is getting more and more expensive. That was up on inflation last month. And it's, I mean, year over year, it's way up. And people are adjusting accordingly, saying, I'm not going to spend money on that. I'm not going to pay a premium for that. We're going to switch from the sliced turkey and ham over here to canned tuna or hot dogs. There's also been an increase in generic brands and not name brands. So people are making those assessments with their budgets, with their pocketbooks, and this is how inflation is really impacting people. They can't afford the things that they typically would go for and would want. And I think to beat the drum about all the progress being made on inflation, which is what the White House is trying to do, is just a big, big misread. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. General Jack Keane, when we return. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour on this Wednesday on the Guy Benson Show, our middle hour out of three, between three and six Eastern, every weekday, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast, of course, free on demand, as we always remind you. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. You can watch, for example, my appearance with Shannon Bream in for Martha earlier on Fox News Channel just about an hour ago. Fox News alert as we begin the hour with the Dow closing down today, 171 points in the red, ending at 33,980. With us now, General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, it's always good to have you. Yeah, delighted to be here, Guy, with you and your audience. Thank you. Well, it's the one-year anniversary of the fiasco in Afghanistan, and I think a lot of people look back on this period in time last year here in this country with shame and embarrassment, some anger some frustration about what happened, and we remember the explosion that killed 13 of our men and women. We remember the images of the plane with people plummeting, trying to cling to the you know the landing gear and, and falling to their deaths, and some of those really disturbing, harrowing images. 
But I want to rewind the tape a little bit further, General, and allow you to remind us this didn't all just happen out of nowhere in the span of a couple weeks. This was months in the making, and we were assured every step of the way things would be orderly and peaceful and fine until they weren't. Talk about the decisions that led up to the chaos and the bloodshed and the embarrassment. Yeah, well, actually, it started during the Trump administration. Uh, initially, uh, when uh, uh, Zal Khalilzad, who was the envoy for President Trump, uh, worked a deal with the Taliban that began negotiating in uh, 2018, and then they they signed the deal. Uh, actually, Secretary Pompeo signed it in February of 2020. But the reason I bring up the negotiations, because it was during those negotiations that there was an agreement. And these negotiations were only taking place between the United States and the Taliban. The the Afghan government was very frustrated that they were not participating, knowing uh, that the implications of these discussions would have profound impact on them. But in the To set the stage for the negotiations, the United States and the Taliban agreed to the following, that the Taliban would not attack the United States uh, uh, troops there. Uh, The United States would not attack uh, the Taliban. However, the Taliban had rights to attack the Afghan security forces, but they worked a deal with the United States that we we would no longer provide air support to the Afghan security forces. So this began in 2018, and working up to the when the deal was signed by the Trump administration, the Afghan security forces were used to being pounded and taking the highest casualties they had taken to date because they no longer had air support. And then the deal was signed in 2020 uh, in February, and that deal set a date certain for the United States to surrender. Excuse me, to withdraw. I always thought it was a surrender because uh, the personal envoy, uh, Kalazai, showed me the document. And when I read it, I told him that this was a surrender document. And it was that definition that they were going to, the United States was going to withdraw with a date certain. At that time, it was going to be May 1, uh, 2021. And the that was a an unbelievable blow to the Afghan government, the security forces, and now having to, having been without air support and now knowing that the United States is going to leave, the morale impact on the security forces was staggering. They also cut a deal and forced uh, Ashraf Ghani, the president, to give up 5,000 Taliban prisoners, something he objected to. He called me a couple of times to get me to intervene with the administration. He said, this is going to be absolutely devastating on my security forces. Most of all of those uh, people in detention were captured by our security forces, not yours, because we stopped combat operations in 2014. So the Trump administration did set a stage for what was eventually going to take place when Biden came in and set a date certain for withdrawal. And and he made that decision in April of 21. And I believe that was actually uh, an unconditional surrender uh, that that took place. But it it helps. The reason why I provided that background, because it helps to explain explain why did the Afghan security forces 
collapse so quickly. Well, they were conditioned for what it was going to be like without air support for over two years, and they took significant casualties. And now they had another president saying that we're going to leave, and the date certain is the the end of August. And those forces uh, uh, collapsed pretty pretty decidedly and and regrettably. Yeah, and so. As you said, and I said it was months in the making, I think the ultimate meltdown was months in the making, but the buildup was for years across two administrations from both political parties. There was a desire to get the American troops there out of the country, but there were some voices saying we don't have to get every single last boot off the ground if it's going to descend into bloodshed and become again a, you know, a, a haven for terrorism – there's a way to do this with a very relatively light footprint without a total surrender, to use your words. That was rejected ultimately by the commander in chief who made the final call, Joe Biden. There were people urging him to make a different choice, including you know, high ranking people in his orbit. And he said, no, we're going to stick with it. And he said he assured the American people this will be orderly. This will be peaceful. This will be done in a smart way. Every American who wants to come out will come out. Any ally that we've promised will be able to come out. And it was quite clear in advance that those promises were not going to be kept. They downplayed the number of Americans who were left in Afghanistan, left behind. They said about 100. We know it's been at least 800 who've gotten out. There are tens of thousands of allies still left there. So many horrible images that come flooding back when you think about what happened a year ago. What could have been done And understanding, General, that most Americans, at least in theory, agree with the idea of getting America out of Afghanistan, what could have been done differently or better to make this thing closer to an actual success as opposed to the lie that this was an extraordinary success, which I think any objective observer would say it was not? Well, I mean, there were two uh, failures. One is strategic and the other was the operational failure dealing with the actual withdrawal. The strategic failure, interesting enough, the uh, the military, the intelligence services, and many of um, President Biden's foreign policy advisors all wanted to stay with the modest force of 2,500. And what was also quite remarkable is that the NATO allies who were in Afghanistan and had been there for as long as we have been there for 20 years— and they were providing more forces than we were. They were providing 6,000 forces. And, and to a country, they all recommended that we stay uh, with the less than perfect situation we had. I mean, we had a stalemate situation where the Afghans could not take over the government, uh, given the 6,000 NATO forces, 2,500 U.S., and the air support and intelligence that those forces were able to provide. But yet... Uh, the Afghan security forces could not defeat the Taliban. That's certainly less than a perfect situation. It's not how we started out. But through subsequent administrations and misguided uh, uh, strategic policy decisions, we got to that point. But in, in the minds of the NATO countries, in the minds of many of President Biden's advisors, and in my own mind, the stalemate was acceptable. Why? because it's, it provided a status quo and it prevented the rise of al-Qaeda and ISIS because we had three military bases, excuse me, we had three intelligence bases there, CIA, and seven military bases to make certain 
that the al-Qaeda and ISIS were not able to establish a sanctuary from which to attack the United States. Then he declared a date certain for that, and that had to be August. And then I think there was a significant operational failure in terms of execution because the intelligence services were sending the alarm that, look, at this, this may go a lot faster because the Afghan security forces are, are, are not willing to continue to fight for the They're government crumbling. that we're that we're leaving and, and we're de- and because we're departing that they're, they're not willing to fight and it looks like they're going to collapse so i think the operational failure was the Biden administration did not make an adjustment despite the intelligence they had to slow the withdrawal down to set some conditions uh, for that for that withdrawal as a matter of fact that not well known is in june the on-scene commander uh, told the administration, he says, okay, I'm about to close Bagram Airfield in two weeks. He closed all the other major installations. Do you still want me to close it, given the changing conditions that have taken place? It took almost the entire two weeks for him to get an answer, and that answer was to close it. So that was very significant because that that took place at the end of June uh, going into uh, July. And we lost that major airfield, uh, which would have been so instrumental in conducting a much better withdrawal, which could have been secured a lot better than trying to do a withdrawal out of an airfield right in the middle of a major city, the capital. Yep. The, for our audience to understand, Bagram was 30 to 40 miles uh, outside the city, like a lot of major airports are outside major, major urban urban areas. And so that that operational failure also from the administration not to change the conditions and just to proceed ahead, uh, despite the fact that cl- the Afghan security forces were collapsing. And the intelligence services were saying, hey, look, at this is going uh, quicker. They, I know for a fact. Right, and they just said full gone. speed ahead, like out of Washington, out of the yeah. White House, full speed ahead no matter what happens. And we're going to keep with all this happy talk. It's going to be fine. It's not inevitable that the Taliban's going to take over. Don't worry. Uh, and every talking point just eventually melted into the reality that we all witnessed. And you had tens of billions of dollars of U.S. equipment left behind. Tens of thousands of U.S. allies left behind that we'd promised to get out. At least hundreds, probably more than a thousand Americans left behind. Just absolutely disgraceful. And, General, before we let you go, my last question is, so we talked about sort of the lead up, then what actually happened during the collapse. What do you think the geopolitical implications have been after the collapse and what other countries, friendly and hostile, saw in what the United States did what were the consequences of those decisions and the way that this all went down, in your view? Well, if we just start with allies and partners, I think the reservations they have about the United States, uh, certainly as a result of that, are, are still in resonance with them because it was a shock for them to see, regardless, regardless of how the American people felt about it, how the world felt about it, they saw the United States had been fighting side by side with an ally, the Afghan government and its security forces, and also trying to help the people for 20 years. And then we just summarily walked away from them. And as a result of it, it returned us to a situation 
that we had in 2001, the Taliban are in charge and they're providing sanctuary to the al-Qaeda. That was stunning for our allies and partners to see, and in their minds, not in accordance with the kind of relationship they believe they had with the, with the United States. So that's one thing. It, it really let down our adversaries, uh, our, our allies and partners, quite significantly. And I think it'll take a lot of time for that to readjust. The second thing is our adversaries. And you saw that almost immediately. Russia, Ukraine, uh, China, Taiwan, Iran, uh, mischief uh, in the Middle East for sure. And listen, the reason why we were there is not for why what I'm about to say, but it was a byproduct of our withdrawal. Well, look at when you look at Afghanistan, we had 10 bases there. We didn't need all of them, but we needed some of them. And, and the border of Afghanistan is China, is Iran, and Russia is one country removed. From all of that presence that we had there, not just collecting on what is going on in Afghanistan, but what is going on around us. That is not the reason we were there. But the geopolitical implications of giving all of that up uh, is, is also uh, quite significant. General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War. I have so much more I'd love to ask you on this subject on Ukraine. We'll have to save that for next time. He is Fox News senior strategic analyst as well. General, as always, we appreciate it. Yeah, great talking to you, Guy, and your audience. Thank you. You bet. And we'll take a very quick break, and we'll be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Still to come, Juan Williams and Tom Homan. Eager to have a conversation with Tom Homan, former acting director of ICE, on the very day that we learn that we have now surpassed two million border encounters at the southern border with illegal immigrants, U.S. officials have, in the last year alone, in the current fiscal year, which isn't over yet. So Tom will be here in the next hour with his reaction and response on that. One other note, we mentioned yesterday briefly with Eli Lake about the conflict going on right now with Israel and the Palestinians and some of the bloodshed. The Israelis took out, it looks like, a couple major terrorist leaders. There were reprisals. The terrorists were shooting off rockets that were missing their targets and, in fact, killing Palestinians, so often the case. They try to blame that on the Israelis. There's a whole propaganda game that's played. There was a terrorist attack in Jerusalem in which five Americans were injured. I'm not sure if you've heard about this. Hasn't gotten a lot of coverage here. Five Americans wounded in the terrorist attack. There was a father who was shot in the face and neck as he tried to protect his family, pulling his son to safety. Looks like he has survived at least for now, and we hope everyone survives, uh, all these injured Americans. There was also a pregnant woman who was shot, and she was in a tough condition at last report. And A.G. Hamilton, an account that I follow on Twitter, A.G. Hamilton 29, I think he's generally a pretty sensible source of things. He added this. He said, it's worth noting that both Hamas, the terrorist organization in charge of Gaza, and Fatah praised this attack. So the Palestinian authorities in the West Bank and Gaza, terrorists and like, you know, the more moderate ones, both praised this terrorist attack. 
He said the family of the terrorists responsible will very likely receive payments from the Martyrs Fund, which is subsidized by U.S. aid. So again, U.S. taxpayers, at least indirectly, will be paying to reward terrorism, in this case terrorism that didn't just target Israelis, but also Americans. It is hard to find a path to peace when one side does not want peace and they want annihilation and death. That's the bottom line in this conflict. And I know which side I take, the side of the Israelis, every single day of the week. It's clarity for me on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the week and the program here on The Guy Benson Show, Wednesday edition. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, all of your needs related to the program right there, including our free podcast every single day. With us now is Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist at The Hill, author of multiple best-selling books. And Juan, it's great to have you back. My pleasure. I hope you're having a happy summer, Guy. Thank you. I mostly am, although I just have to kind of like quickly rant about this. And you probably don't want to hear about it as a Nationals fan because you guys have had a really tough season. I'm a Yankee fan, as you know, and we had just a roaring start to the season in first half. Started to sputter just a tiny bit right before the All-Star break. And since the All-Star break, the Yankees have looked like the Nationals. With all due respect, they've just been awful. They've lost five consecutive series. They're getting, like, shut out or one run in a bunch of these games. And I keep waiting for them to snap out of it, but it's been, like, a month at this point. And I'm wondering, do you have any little tips or hints where I can do some, I don't know, like some sort of a rain dance or something or some sort of superstition I can engage in to try to kill this slump because it's bad? Well, you know, let me just say there's no need for you to offer me your due respect when, with regard to the Nationals because they're the worst team in baseball, man. I mean, they're terrible. Yeah. But I, but I feel like they, they might you know, sweep the Yankees. Know. If they played right now, they might sweep no. the Yankees. The no. Yankees no. are just playing this like is, garbage. This is where you and I have to disagree. I am looking <laughs> up from the cellar at you. I'm looking at you, and I'm saying, Yeah, no, Man, I know. They're in first place. Don't, don't stop. You look, I think you have a 10-game lead. You have a 10-game lead on the AL East. Is that right? Uh, roughly 10 games. Last I checked, it was 10. How could it still be 10 if they are still playing this poorly as they have been. Let me check the standings, actually, uh, real quick here now that you're mentioning it. But last I saw it was a 10-game lead. It's now down to 9 over Tampa. So, I mean, they've been playing this poorly. But I think that just shows you how big of a cushion that they sort of built for themselves over the first half and change of the season where I guess they can afford to go through a deep freeze for a while and still be in the driver's seat to win the division. I'm just like... I feel bad for the starting pitchers who overall have been pitching very well. <laughs> they lose games like three to two, one to nothing. Uh, Bronx Bombers not doing so much bombing at the moment. Well, wait a second. I think you have the home run leader in all of baseball in Aaron Judge, and he's doing yeah. great. He is literally threatening the real home run record in American baseball history, which belongs yeah, that's to right. Roger Maris. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and look, it's been a fun ride to watch, and I'm rooting for Judge, and he's certainly pulled his weight this season. I'm just saying, as a team, the slump is real. Five straight series losses is, you know, nothing to write off. 
but I am definitely complaining to the wrong guy <laughs> as a Nationals fan. So and you guys, you're know. still licking your wounds about the Soto deal and, and the departure of this bright young talent. It's hard to really blame him for his decision, but it still stings, I think, for people in your position. I mean, it's just that's how sports fandom works. You know, it's just a reminder. I mean, I can hear in your voice, you know, you're like Charlie Brown with the football. You, you're a longtime Yankees fan, and you just don't want to lose the joy, the potential of the World Series. But, you know, for me, I'm a child, too, uh, at heart when it comes to baseball. And, I, you know, to see Juan Soto go, I don't know. I think the owners, the business of baseball is all about, you know, winning the World Series and the ratings. And so for a guy who thinks hometown loyalty and, you know, sticking with your team even when they're down is important, to see, you know, the the owners say, well, we're not going to pay Soto even though he's worth it. And to see Soto say, it doesn't matter that you were going to give me a King's Ransom anyway, I'm walking away. It's just... I don't want to even look at it. I'm just going to remain a fan. I'm just going to be yeah. a diehard. I like to go to baseball games. I find it relaxing. It's time with my wife, time with my family and friends. Yeah, so I'm a sucker. Yeah, I guess I enjoy that, too. I just enjoy when the team is winning. That definitely makes it more relaxing and more fun and more enjoyable overall. But I admire the fact that you're sticking with it because the thin years make – the bounty year is all the more impressive and enjoyable. And you guys aren't that far removed from that big World Series victory a couple seasons ago. And you had a taste of that, and now it's back sort of into the cellar. And we'll see if they can rebuild the thing. Juan, I do want to ask you, on a political level, something I've been curious about. Because there was that whole, I mean, it was like weeks of news cycles about Joe Biden and whether he was going to run again. And he was getting angry reportedly that the Democrats were basically tossing him out. They didn't want him anymore. And the polling showed what three-fourths of Democrats want someone else in 2024. And his team was saying, no, he's absolutely running and he's getting fed up with this whispering all around town. And that seems to have maybe abated a little bit because he's been able to sign a couple of these laws into effect and he's trying to maybe – create a little bit of a bounce for himself or a political bump for himself. But still, I think the the dynamic here is going to be interesting once we get past the midterms. Is this really someone who wants to seek a second term and is viable to seek a second term for the presidency? As a Democrat and a Democratic voter, how do you look at Joe Biden? Is he a one-term president who's carrying the torch and bridging the gap to another generation who should maybe stand down before 2024? Or are you on the Joe train, the you know, the Biden train for reelection? I think I'm on the Biden train for reelection and, and in large part because even with Joe Biden on a winning streak and he's on a real winning streak, that's not just an opinion coming from someone who leans to the Democratic side. I think everybody understands that the victories that he's had on the COVID, on infrastructure, and now on the uh, infrastructure, inflation reduction, or whatever they call it, act, (laughs) uh, climate change, and, you know, lowering the cost of drugs. Those are real victories for people. Even the chips bill, the guns bill, I can keep going on. This guy's been on a winning streak. But the reason that I say that to you is that, look, the reality is that Joe Biden is the one Democrat who has beaten Donald Trump. And Donald Trump 
remains the key player on the Republican side, backed by most Republicans. They want him to be the nominee, even after the raid down in Mar-a-Lago and the potential for him holding sensitive data and all that. No, they still like him, still love him. So if he's the candidate, we know Joe Biden can beat him. Uh, and so I think that's an important thing to say. The second thing is Joe Biden has said he's running. And the third thing to say is Joe Biden said, well, if my health gives out and he's an elderly man, we don't know what will happen in those terms. But for right now, I think Democrats who are turning away from Biden are doing so at the request of Republicans who know that Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump. Now, he beat Donald Trump during the pandemic where he didn't really run much of a campaign and made the whole thing a referendum on Trump. It would be harder to do that next time as the incumbent. And we don't know what the political environment will look like two years from now. But I'm not sure you can just say the success one on one with Trump under those circumstances and those election rules and all the craziness in 2020 could be replicated in 2024. But you to your point, you can say he's done it once. Maybe he can do it again. I think part of the argument that the Biden people might try to make to their fellow Democrats if this continues to be a big fight and Biden really wants a second term. So you could say, do you trust someone else to have a better chance of beating Trump than I do? And I wonder how you look at that. You know, the the vice president, Kamala Harris, would she be next in line? Some of these cabinet secretaries or senators or governors out there. Are there other people that you would be more confident in their ability to beat Trump or Ron DeSantis, whoever the Republicans put up there, is is Biden still at the top of your list in terms of electoral viability one? Yeah, absolutely. So right now, most Democrats are still saying, I don't know, in the aftermath of a recent winning streak and the change in the media narrative about Biden, which has been negative for so long, and now it's turning more positive, and I don't know what happens in the midterm. So there's a lot there that we have to factor in. But, Guy, I think that right now you'd have to say that Joe Biden, having beaten Trump, his numbers, not good, but his prospects in terms of having done something about the cost of prescription drugs, having done something in terms of the infrastructure and able to argue now that, you know what, I get things done for the American people, for people in terms of kitchen table issues, that helps. And secondly, you were talking about the landscape. Just think about it. Trump is under that January 6th congressional investigation that will be ongoing into the fall. Now we know about the Justice Department investigation of these documents down at Mar-a-Lago. And you have also the fact that gas prices, inflation look to be ebbing and... Well, maybe. There's a lot of unknowns. I mean, that's fair. There's also a Justice Department investigation into Hunter Biden. There's there's a lot that can change, to your point, between now and let's say mid-2023. But I think the case that you're making here, Juan, is the case that Team Biden is going to try to advance, even though a lot of Democrats are ready to just sort of give him the cold shoulder or the stiff arm and say it's time for someone else. What you're arguing is how they're going to try to build some regained momentum for Biden 24 if that's the direction that they choose to head. And if a lot of Democrats still aren't convinced, then it could become a big food fight on both sides of the aisle heading into 2024. We'll be talking a lot more about that in the months to come with many of our guests, including Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist at The Hill, author. Juan, always good to have you. Thanks so much, and I hope your Yankees get better.
Yeah, you and me both. Maybe September will be the month marching into October. They've got the talent, but not getting it done right now. Juan Williams, thanks so much, and we'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show after this. Guy Benson will be right back. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. And yesterday we told you about, and we played you the soundbite of Mayor Bowser in Washington, D.C. She was challenged on this policy that I guess for now they're sticking with, the vaccine mandate for school kids in D.C. Children have to get vaccinated against COVID or they can't show up for school over a certain age. I think it's like, you know, 11 or older. They, In order to show up and have in-person instruction, they have to be vaccinated. And a reporter pointed out, and the Washington Post had reported this as well, that disproportionately high numbers of students of color were not vaccinated and therefore would bear the brunt of this decision that flies in the face of so much science that we've known for so long and even flies in the face now of the new CDC guidance, which diminishes any real differences in terms of treatment of vaccinated versus unvaccinated people when it comes to some of these requirements. If someone is exposed, for example, to COVID, even the CDC is giving up the ghost belatedly on this stuff. And yet, with those distinctions finally coming into play and a greater acknowledgement of the value of natural immunity, the Brain Trust in Washington, D.C., led by the mayor, a famous COVID hypocrite herself, they've decided that all these kids have to be vaccinated or they can't show up to school. Even though 40 percent, for example, of black students aren't vaccinated and would stand to be harmed yet again, even more by additional learning loss. At this stage, we're talking about the 22-23 school year. We are years into this. And she was pushed by a reporter about it, and she stood by the decision, stood by the insane policy, and said that the numbers were wrong. And the numbers quoted by this reporter and printed in the Washington Post come from her own government, from the Washington, D.C. official database. This is their data which she was disputing or dismissing while tripling, quadrupling down on this madness. So that's Washington, D.C. Right across the river, there was a memo that went out to parents in Fairfax County, one of these very blue northern Virginia counties, which was part of the anti-Yunkin resistance. Remember when Yunkin came in, the new governor? He won back last November. COVID issues in schools were a very big animating issue of that campaign. He came in and by executive order lifted the mask mandate in schools and made it optional for parents. And a bunch of school districts, mostly just a handful of blue ones, deep blue areas, had to do the whole resistance thing. And they said, well, we're not going to comply. We're going to sue. You don't have the power, blah, blah, blah. And then the governor was able to whip enough votes in both chambers of the legislature in Richmond, and they passed a law mandating that there would be optional masking. Parents would have that choice in schools. And thank God they did it. That was a huge achievement by Glenn Youngkin. And by the Republicans and a handful, small handful of Democrats in Virginia. So that law is on the books. And yet this memo went out to Fairfax parents saying that if there was 
a heightened level, like the highest level of COVID threshold, whatever the number was going to be, then there would be a mask requirement again in Fairfax County schools. But then I guess it was clarified, but actually due to the statute, due to the law, parents would still have a choice. It was just kind of this baffling memo that went out. Maybe they forgot that the law was on the books. Maybe they were just so desperate to cling to the power where they're just, you know, very much ready, itching to bring back requirements and mandates, and they want to be able to do it. So they're writing sort of these fantastical memos that actually won't apply and can't apply under the law, but they put it out anyway because they can't help themselves. And absent that law, you know there are still a lot of these busybody, administrative, bureaucrat types who love wielding control over your life, over your children. And if not for that law in place, there would be parts of Virginia doing it again. They're making it very clear they tipped their hand here by sending out what they did. In New York City, the new guidance, even after the CDC changes just happened, New York City public schools put out their new rules and regulations under which parents who are unvaccinated will not be allowed access into the schools to, like, go pick up their kid or whatever. No unvaccinated parents allowed to access schools in New York City, even though CDC said we're not really treating vaccinated and unvaccinated differently anymore. That's what New York City is sticking with. And across the river from New York in New Jersey, at the flagship university, State University in New Jersey, Rutgers, they just put out their new list of covid rules And it's still a bunch of mandates, full vaccines and the full complement of shots for students. It's mandatory and there's going to be required testing for certain indoor events and masking is required indoors in a bunch of settings. It's like some of these people are still living a year and a half ago, like nothing's changed and they haven't noticed the data, the science, even the CDC finally coming around. It just doesn't matter to them. They don't care. They are addicted to the control that they had back then. They don't want to recognize that things have changed and they are trying to hang on to this moment for as long as they can, even on a college campus filled with young, healthy people. It's crazy. And frankly, I think Republicans would be wise to keep education and COVID restrictions front and center as a major issue in the campaign. It worked extremely well last November. I think they would be foolish to pretend or assume that that stuff was baked in or voters don't need to be reminded of it. They do, clearly. The Guy Benson Show continues with our final hour coming up. Tom Homan, former acting director of ICE, will be here on the big illegal immigration news that just broke today. That's right ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday. That third and final hour is the happy hour. And we've started it together here. Sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Thelongdrink.com is their website. You can find out where they're sold near you as they really do expand. 
due to popular demand. TheLongDrink.com, always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. And our website here at the show is GuyBensonShow.com. Nice and easy to remember. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Our podcast is available on demand every day after the show for free. No charge to you at all. That's the same every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. With us now is Tom Homan, former acting director of ICE and now a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And Tom, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, today we learned officially a piece of news that we had been bracing for. My colleague here at Fox, Griff Jenkins, a few hours ago tweeting this, breaking, CBP, so the Border Patrol sources, say migrant encounters for this fiscal year have now surpassed 2 million. It's 2,000,034 as of right now. That's a new record, and there are still weeks to go in the fiscal year. The new record set this past weekend in a milestone never before seen in our history. This compared to last year's record-setting numbers, which were close to 1.3 million at this stage in fiscal year 21. So, I mean, we are well past the record smash from last year. We were at 1.3 million at this stage, now over 2 million, Tom, this year. Just take a step back. Over the course of your career, being immersed in these issues and border enforcement, tell us about the context of that number, 2 million and counting in a single year. Well, my 35 years, you never came close to that. I mean, if you look at, we got one, they got 1.7 million last year, which is a record. It's actually 1.9 because they're not counting for adventure cases. So let's just go with their number, 1.7. Now, we're at 2 million. We've got two months left of reporting. You know, they're not, of course, August is not yet, so we have August and September to go. So we're going to end right around 2.4. Add that to 1.7, you got over 4 million illegal entries in the United States. Then you add to that, right now we got, since Joe Biden became president, we have 900,000 gotaways. They're averaging between 40 and 60,000 months. So by two more months, they're going to have 1 million gotaways. That's 5 million people who enter the country illegally. Think about that for a moment. 5 million people in two years enter this country illegally. And if you look at what the government did, they released 1.7 so far. We know that. And we know the 900,000, which will be a million, they're released because they weren't caught. So we're talking about 2.7 million people that crossed the border and got in successfully. And that's what we know about, right? Because the gotaways are on camera, drone, central traffic. We don't know how many of the unknown gotaways because there's, there's hundreds of miles of the border with no sensors or cameras. So it's just incredible. It boggles my mind. And I wake up every day angry because we handed this administration the most secure border in my career. And they went from the most secure border to historic levels that we never this is like this is like triple what we've seen in the worst years throughout our career. This is this has no comparison. It's 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 a border out of control. And what this is really means I did a hit this morning on Fox and and, and Stuart said, Well Stuart Marnie said, Well a lot of people in, in New York don't really care about the border issue. Well, they should because of two reasons. Number one, because seventy percent of border choices have pulled off the line dealing with these massive numbers. Seventy percent off the line. That's why there's so much fat coming across this border that's killed over hundred thousand Americans, number one, including many, many New Yorkers. Number two, I don't care what your opinion is on illegal immigration. When seventy percent of the border choices are off the line, that's when criminals, gang members, 
sex trafficking and those who are terrorists and can come across the border. Border Patrol has admitted they've arrested 66 known suspected terrorists off the FBI's watch list. Terrorists don't want to be arrested. How many of the 900,000 are known suspected terrorists? Because we know Border Patrol arrested people from 161 different countries. Many of these countries sponsor terrorism. I'll say it a thousand times. We, if you don't think a single terrorist has crossed that border out of the 900,000, then you're ignorant to the data. This is a huge national security issue. Yeah, I mean, it's not just potential terrorists. It's gang members. It's human traffickers. It's drug smugglers. It's convicted felons who spent a lot of money with the cartels to get them undetected across the border. They're the ones who don't want to get caught. And it would stand to reason that a disproportionate percentage of the gotaways would constitute that element, right? It's not an overwhelming majority or even a majority. Most people just want to come to this country and and build a better life. They don't have a right to do it. If they do it illegally, that should matter. Not uh, There's not a huge like national security and public safety issue with most illegal immigrants, but with some, that is the case. And you can't just pretend or wish that away or turn a blind eye as if it's not happening. And I think that matters. I want to come back to the terrorism point in just a second, but you said something that sparked my curiosity, Tom. Is there any way, because you ran through the stats, you know them backwards and forwards, more than 2 million encounters this year, about 4 million total this year plus last year combined, closing it on a million known gotaways, that's 5 million people. Is there any way to even estimate the unknown gotaway population? I know ultimately it's unknowable. Is there any back-of-the-envelope way that you guys in law enforcement guesstimate what that number might look like, or is it just a total mystery? Well, in the past, we've always figured for everyone we caught, there was two gotaways. But that number, again, is a lot worse now because, again, we've never had 70 percent, 70 percent of border off the line. So there's, there's more gotaways now. So you know, it's probably, you know, one in four. Because, the, you know, you got Chris Magnus, the commissioner of CBP, said this morning, well, we had, you know, a dec- we, had, we had two months of decline. They're celebrating 200,000 apprentices, first of all. But you need to understand, when, that, when there's less encounters, that just means there's less gotaways. Because what the commissioner is not saying is how many border trades draw off the line. When you get agents off the line, there's going to be less encounters, and there's going to be more gotaways. That's just common sense. So there's, there's no way to really know, but we always count you know, whatever one you call it, there's, there's two gotaways. With 70% off the line, it's probably one in four, one in five. And by the way, right before the pandemic, just to put a finer point on this as well, because I'll throw out July of 2020 because it was a weird time in the middle of the pandemic, near the beginning, there were only 33, only, quote-unquote, only 33,000 encounters at the border in July of 2020. But right before that, July 2019, this was as the Trump administration was finally starting to figure things out with Remain in Mexico and the safe third country agreements and some of the other successful policies that really worked toward the latter part of Trump's administration. But in July of 2019, the numbers were still pretty bad, about 100,000 encounters at the border that month. July 2022, the numbers that just came out, was roughly double that. I don't know how anyone could celebrate that or point to that as an example of success or that the border is actually closed and secure because, well, you know, look at all the encounters. Look at all the drugs that they're confiscating and interdicting. That just willfully ignores the point that you're making, Tom, about all the people and stuff that gets away because you have an overwhelmed border, overwhelmed personnel, with the large majority of those agents 
not doing the job of enforcement and instead processing a bunch of people and releasing them into the country, which is unto itself the magnet that's fueling all of this. Yeah, it's not only the numbers. The numbers are staggering compared to what the Trump administration was. But you mentioned the 33,000 encounters at one month. 33,000 is a lot. But here's the difference. On the Trump administration, they were detained. They're either detained or removed to remain in Mexico. I think in one month, uh, you know, the average uh, releases in the country in one month, I mean, one month it was 56, 56 total releases. And that was because of a significant humanitarian concern. They, they, we, they might have found them in really bad medical shape, and we had we had to hospitalize them because they would have died. You know, 56 in one month. And, and, and paroles, they're paroling hundreds of thousands of people in the United States, which is, again, violation of statute because that's supposed to be a case-by-case analysis. And just like in Yuma, one month they paroled everybody. I think as ICE director, I was ICE director for a year and a half. I paroled maybe four people. And, for, again, for significant humanitarian concerns. So it's not only the staggering numbers. It's what they're doing with the numbers. We got right. in the catch and release on the Trump administration. This administration, we know, already have released 1.7 million people in the United States. And these people, less than half will show up in court. And the ones that show up in court, 90 percent, actually 88.6 will not get relief from U.S. courts because they don't qualify. So what happens to that 9 out of 10 that, that claim asylum and lose their case? Nothing. Because the Homeland Security Lifestyle Report says a couple of things. Number one, if they're UAC, they lead 3% of the time when ordered. If they're family unit, they lead 6% of the time when ordered. Single adult, they lead 18% of the time when ordered. Secretary Marcus knows this. This is his report. So why are they not detaining him? Because he knows 90% lose their case. But but very, very few would leave, which is exactly what they want. They'll hang out long enough. They'll stay in hiding until the next giveaway, the next amnesty, the next DACA. You know, yesterday's UACs, yesterday's unaccompanied alien children are tomorrow's DACA. This is what this administration doing, because the same life cycle report says this. If you're detained and get a final order, you're removed over 99% of the time. That's why they're releasing them. That's why he's decapitated ICE. That's why ICE isn't looking for these people who lose their cases because the secretary has said being in the country illegally on its own isn't enough for ICE to make an arrest. This yep. is all a part of their of their of their just just ridiculous plan of open border. Well, not just that, Tom. You have the Homeland Security secretary from the administration, and we talked about this months ago. I think it was last year. He put out the memo saying. Here are all the things that we won't deport you for. Just being here illegally, which should be a deportable offense. That is a violation of our sovereignty. It should be pretty straightforward. That is definitely not on the list for automatic deportation. And they said on top of that, you can commit all of these types of crimes, be convicted of any of these categories of crimes, and you're still not prioritized for deportation. You add that plus all the releasing that you're talking about for the reasons that you're discussing. And it seems very clear that incentives have been erected. People follow that. People notice it, whether it's the cartels, the coyotes, or just, you know, average run-of-the-mill would-be illegal immigrants. They follow this stuff pretty closely. And when the message coming from Washington, D.C. is, despite whatever they say in a soundbite, the border secure don't come, if the message is based on policy, come and you will likely be able to stay and it'll be hard for us to ever deport you, of course people are going to come. 
Right. In this administration, look, we're soon to have um, – I've been involved with many lawsuits. I'm the expert witness in several lawsuits, either in Florida, Arizona, or Texas. The, ICE, the thing you just talked about, about not arresting criminals, I actually testified. I was on the stand for four hours in Houston, Texas, federal court. I was the expert witness for Texas in a lawsuit. We won. And they asked for they asked for a stay in it, and, and the court said the Supreme Court said no. Well, they might have oral arguments in, in 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 December. So the court ordered them get rid of that memo. You didn't enforce the laws written by statute, and they're still not doing it. I talk to ICE every day. They're still not doing it. They could get, they could give a a crack about what the federal government about what federal courts say. They're ignoring them. The federal courts when they talk about remain in Mexico, they ignored that when when they were ordered to put the remain in Mexico program back in place. They ignored that. They're only running about 20%. When they were ordered, you're not ending Title 42, they're only running that about 10% of what Trump administration has done. So every time we win against this administration and get a federal court to agree with us, this administration just ignores them. I don't yeah, know no, why the Secretary of Homeland Security has not been called into court and held in contempt. But this administration is lawless. Yeah, no, I think that's the key word I was about to say. There is lawlessness at multiple levels of this problem. And you expect – drug cartels to be lawless. You expect human traffickers to be lawless. By definition, you shouldn't expect the United States government to be lawless when it comes to enforcing our own laws. But in large measure, that is exactly what they are. And it reflects exactly what they have and have not been doing now for the better part of two years. Tom Homan, former acting director of ICE, is my guest. We're up on a break, Tom. Let's quickly take it and come back. I want to return to the terrorism question, some eye-opening and startling numbers that came out yesterday on that front. We'll get to them next. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, Tom Homan, kind to stick around with us, former acting director of ICE. And coming back full circle, you mentioned the terrorism issue. And that is a very small sliver of the problem. And I don't want to oversell it. At the same time, our colleague Bill Malugin tweeted this yesterday. Border Patrol reporting 10 people on the FBI's terrorist screening database were arrested by Border Patrol at the southern border in the month of July. That's 10 people last month alone who were on this terrorist watch list, who were detained. We have no idea how many people got away among those, what, 50, 60,000 gotaways that month, but 10 of them were caught from that list. That is now the number has risen to 66 people from that list in fiscal year 2022, which is more than double, listen to this, that number is more than double the previous five years combined. You cannot just look at that and say it doesn't matter. And whether they're terrorists or criminals or any other undesirable element, that has to be part of the conversation. It's part of the conversation that they refuse to have, and they're only going to, I guess, be held accountable if voters make that happen. And that's up to voters in November because the administration is more than happy with this dysfunctional, disastrous status quo. And the media, for the most part, Tom, and maybe you can end on this, the media seems more than happy generally to ignore and downplay it here's my concern on a terrorist watch you know again you're right the rest 66 but there's it'll be close to a million got away since joe biden became president again they arrest people in 161 countries many of these countries sponsor terrorism how many 900,000 enter this country do us harm and here's what scares the hell out of me after 9-11 we created all these databases i was up there in dc you got the you got the no fly list you got the fbi screening database you got the visa security program 
We prevented literally thousands of people from entering this country, getting a visa, or getting an airline ticket that had derogatory information in their background. The visa security program, which I oversaw as ICE director, we literally, literally had prevented thousands of people from getting a visa because when we went through all these database checks, including DOD database checks, there was derogatory information. They didn't get a visa. But here's the issue. Those systems are a lot less effective now. Why? If I'm a terrorist, why am I going to apply for a visa or an air ticket knowing that I'm going to get vetted, knowing I possibly could be outed? And, and, and now the whole world knows I'm a known suspected terrorist because they actually – Yeah, go pay the cartels to smuggle you across and maybe pay a premium so you don't get caught. And I mean that's obviously the ticket in. And the question that these people, the people in charge, the Biden administration should be asked every day – is how many of the close to one million gotaways are acceptable? How many gotaways are acceptable? And within that population, there will be some subpopulation of dangerous people, public safety threats, and national security threats. How many of those are acceptable? And what do you tell families whose loved ones get impacted by these people who come here and do harm? And I don't think that they have good answers to those questions. They are rarely asked those questions, which is why it keeps happening. And if there's going to be any semblance of accountability, hearings, anything like that, there has to be a change in the power dynamic in Washington, D.C., which keeps bringing us back to the midterm elections in November. Tom Homan, we've got to leave it there for now. Unfortunately, there'll be more of this to talk about, I'm sure, in the coming months. Tom Homan is the former acting director of ICE, now a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Tom, we always appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. We'll be right back after this on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. Earlier on today's program, we caught up with General Jack Keat, a retired four-star general, and his reflections on the one-year anniversary of the disgrace in Afghanistan and that whole withdrawal still reverberating today, a year later. Here's part of my conversation with General Keat. Talk about the decisions that led up to the chaos and the bloodshed and the embarrassment. Yeah, well, actually, it started during the Trump administration, uh, initially, uh, when uh, uh, Zal Khalizide, who was the envoy for President Trump, uh, worked a deal with the Taliban that began negotiating in uh, 2018. And then they they signed the deal. Uh, actually, Secretary Pompeo signed it in February of 2020. But re- the reason I bring up the negotiations, because... It was during those negotiations that there was an agreement. And these negotiations were only taking place between the United States and the Taliban. The the Afghan government was very frustrated that they were not participating, knowing uh, that the implications of these discussions would have profound impact on them. But to set the stage for the negotiations, the United States and the Taliban agreed to the following that the Taliban would not attack the United States uh, uh, troops there. Uh, The United States would not attack uh, the Taliban. However, the Taliban had rights to attack the Afghan security forces, but they worked a deal with the United States that we we would no longer provide air support to the Afghan security forces. So this began in 2018, 
And working up to the when the deal was signed by the Trump administration, the Afghan security forces were used to being pounded and taking the highest casualties they had taken to date because they no longer had air support. And then the deal was signed in 2020 uh, in February. And that deal set a date certain for the United States to surrender. Excuse me, to withdraw. I always thought it was a surrender because uh, the personal envoy, uh, Kalazide, showed me the document. And when I read it, I told him that this was a surrender document. And it was that definition that they were going to, the United States was going to withdraw with a date certain. At that time, it was going to be May 1, uh, 2021. And the that was a, an unbelievable blow to the Afghan government, the security forces. And now having, to, having been without air support and now knowing that the United States is going to leave, the morale impact on the security forces was staggering. They also cut a deal and forced uh, Ashraf Ghani, the president, to give up 5,000 Taliban prisoners, something he objected to. He called me a couple of times to get me to intervene with the administration. He said, this is going to be absolutely devastating on my security forces. Most of all of those uh, people in detention were captured by our security forces, not yours, because we stopped combat operations in 2014. So the Trump administration did set a stage oh, yeah. for what was eventually going to take place when Biden came in and set a date certain for withdrawal, and, and he made that decision in April of 21. And I believe that was actually uh, an unconditional surrender uh, that, that took place. But it, it helps. The reason why I provided that background, because it helps to explain, explain why did the Afghan security forces collapse so quickly? Well, they were conditioned for what it was going to be like without air support for over two years, and they took significant casualties. And now they had another president saying that we're going to leave, and the date certain is the, the end of August. And those forces uh, uh, collapsed pretty pretty decidedly and, and regrettably. Yeah, and so, as you said, and I said it was months in the making, I think the ultimate meltdown was months in the making, but the buildup was for years across two administrations from both political parties. There was a desire to get the American troops there out of the country. But there were some voices saying we don't have to get every single last boot off the ground if it's going to descend into bloodshed and become again a, you know, a, a haven for terrorism. There's a way to do this with a very relatively light footprint without a total surrender, to use your words, that was rejected ultimately by the commander in chief who made the final call, Joe Biden. There were people urging him to make a different choice, including you know, high ranking people in his orbit. And he said, no, we're going to stick with it. And he said he assured the American people this will be orderly. This will be peaceful. This will be done in a smart way. Every American who wants to come out will come out. Any ally that we've promised will be able to come out. And it was quite clear in advance, that those promises were not going to be kept. They downplayed the number of Americans who were left in Afghanistan, left behind. They said about 100. We know it's been at least 800 who've gotten out. There are tens of thousands of allies still left there. So many horrible images that come flooding back when you think about what happened a year ago. What could have been done 
an understanding, General, that most Americans, at least in theory, agree with the idea of getting America out of Afghanistan. What could have been done differently or better to make this thing closer to an actual success as opposed to the lie that this was an extraordinary success, which I think any objective observer would say it was not? Well, I mean, there were two uh, failures. One is strategic and the other was the operational failure dealing with the actual withdrawal. The strategic failure, interesting enough, the uh, the military, the intelligence services, and many of um, President Biden's foreign policy advisors all wanted to stay with the modest force of 2,500. And what was also quite remarkable is that the NATO allies who were in Afghanistan and had been there for as long as we have been there for 20 years, and they were providing more forces than we were. They were providing 6,000 forces. And, and to a country, they all recommended that we stay uh, with the less than perfect situation we had. I mean, we had a stalemate situation where the Afghans could not take over the government, uh, given the 6,000 NATO forces, 2,500 U.S., and the air support and intelligence that those forces were able to provide. But yet... Uh, the Afghan security forces could not defeat the Taliban. That's certainly less than a perfect situation. It's not how we started out. But through subsequent administrations and misguided uh, uh, strategic policy decisions, we got to that point. That full discussion with General Jack Keane available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, the whole show, every day on demand, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, producer Christine has returned from yet another vacation. I don't know if she ever really works around here, but we will check in with her when we come back after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Wednesday on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com podcast always free each and every day. And we mentioned during the home stretch yesterday that producer Christine was on vacation. I couldn't really keep track of where she was this time. I think that she's taking the month of September off to go to, was it the Bahamas? Maybe some sort of Venetian villa. I can't really remember. Christine, are you going to be off for the whole month of September or just three weeks? I'm not even, what are you talking about? I I do not take... A ton of time off. I take the same amount of time as everybody else on this show. And I'm not going anywhere in September. I'm here with you. Well, that's a relief. Actually, I'm just, of course, joking. I'm going away this coming weekend. Although I'll be on the show from abroad for a couple days next week. Then I'll be off for a number of shows. We were just giving you a hard time because of your habit while on vacation to... Unplug, which is fine. It's just not something that you typically allow other people to do, including Quiet Wyatt. There was another example. What were we, oh, you were, there's a guest that we were talking about trying to get this week, and she's on vacation and said, let's do it soon. And you're like, well, maybe she can just like, I don't know, give us a break and just quickly step away and uh, just a short phone call during her vacation. And I thought that was a very interesting rich expectation 
given the fact that Christine is very difficult to book when she's gone, whether she's on the boat or, I guess, on the golf course? This was a golf vacation you just took? Well, we went up to Cape Cod for uh, Bobby had a cousin who was getting married up there. So we took advantage and, you know, spent the weekend up there and then did some golfing. And then we came home and Bobby and I had a little uh, day vacation, just the two of us, because Megan is with my mother in the Hamptons. So we oh, went staycation. Go- wait, wait, hang on. Your daughter's in the Hamptons? Yeah, my aunt lives out there. So my mom takes my daughter and my niece every year for a week out there. Ooh, that's nice. I'm not sure how much, like, you know, they're doing. I don't think Judgy Joyce is the bougie kind of lady, but, you know, it's fun. They go to the beach. They go shopping, yeah, go out to lunch, dinners. Yeah, that all sounds terrific. That sounds good. And then you have an opportunity to just sort of take a breath not have the mom hat on all the time, staycation, what did that entail? Spa type stuff or just hanging out? No, we got up, you know, took a walk, went for breakfast, and then we went to golf. So we golfed in the afternoon, Bobby and I, and it was fun. This was a golf-heavy golf couple days then. Yes, I got the golf bug back at me. So now I kind of want to, like, join a league of some sort. I wonder if there's, like, a ladies who golf league. I am sure... That exists. I just don't know when you would have time necessarily to do that. Maybe on weekends, but when you've got Megan back at home, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to discourage you from this. You were talking, gosh, was it a year or two ago about taking lessons? I did. Remember, yeah, I couldn't lessons... answer you some days when I was on the golf course. <laughs> I had it in airplane oh, yeah, like, mode. Yeah, like during the show or like just after the show was over, I'd like call you to talk about something. It'd be like 6:01 p.m. And be like, oh, sorry, mama's on the golf course. Now, how did the lessons turn out? Are they paying dividends in your golf game? You know, I think I think they are. I think also it's just nice, you know, when I golf with my in-laws, my brother-in-law and Bobby, I get, you know, good advice. So I, I think the thing with golf, do you play at all? Not at all. Like I was going to ask you what your handicap is, oh, but no, I no. wouldn't even know what that means. Or what number would be good? Well, I so mean, any I, answer you'd give back to me would be totally meaningless to me. I am just not a golf person at all. I kind of like having it on in the background on silent or very low volume because it's relaxing and looks pretty, especially at Augusta. And one day I would like to go to the Masters just to have that experience and check the box, bucket list stuff. But I don't play golf. I don't follow golf. It's just not something that means much to me. Because it just seems like a very expensive and time-consuming pastime. And for some people, it's a great escape, and they love it, and it's you know networking and time with friends, and I get all that. That makes perfect sense. For others, it's also not just expensive but very stressful. They get very angry. They get very frustrated, and I feel like I just don't need that in my life. Mini golf maybe once a year. That's it. I don't know. It's not stressful to me. I mean, where else can you go at 11 a.m.? Do a round of nine and have, you know, some cocktails and not be judged at all by anybody. Are you saying that your golfing is really just an excuse-making vehicle for day drinking? All I'm saying is uh, we played a round of nine, and at the first three holes, I was terrible. Got myself a couple high noons, and the back end, I was doing very well. I even I, I even did a par on the sixth, so I was very excited. It's a lot of fun. Well, I'm- Thinking. Hang on. A couple of things here. Number one, mm-hmm. at what hole do they take the keys away from you with a golf cart or it just becomes too much of a risk to yourself or others? They don't. They don't. 
It's the beauty well, of it. See, that's that's terrifying. And then secondly, you would think that maybe it would cross your mind once or twice before you say out loud, plugging the direct competitor of our sponsor, Long Drink, on the air, which you just did. Actually, it's funny. Did you mean, did you mean to say that you were drinking Long Drinks Actually, on the golf course? I really do. Because okay. I actually showed you a picture up in Cape Cod. Oh, that is true. That I, is I true. actually meant to say long drinks because my sister-in-law and I had a few up in Cape Cod on the golf course. And So I the long say, drinks enhanced your golf performance is what you're saying. Yes. Actually, my brother-in-law did say, oh, okay, cookie, that, that's cookie, better. cookie does better when she has a little uh, booze <laughs> in her. And when we signed up for golf in Cape Cod, I had I was running late, so I pulled up behind Bobby and my brother-in-law, and I just hear a lady who had signed us up going, "Who? who's Cookie? Who's named Cookie around here? And I said, oh, that's me. <laughs> you signed up as Cookie? No, they signed me up as Cookie. Nobody up, my, Bobby's entire family only knows me as Cookie. They don't call me anything else. It's all Cookie. Huh. Okay. All right. Now, have you considered, because you have these schemes to get rich, have you considered focusing on your golf game and becoming a golf pro? I, I, I think that's too late for that to happen. But mm. what I was looking at when I was up in Cape Cod was houses. Because remember, I wanted to Airbnb. I wanted to buy a home. and I Buy a home and become a landlord. This yep. is one of your plans. And if I recall correctly, just for the record, was I, shall we say, skeptical of that plan? Well, I think you were definitely skeptical because you don't want mm-hmm. me anywhere near you up in Cape Cod either. Well, and I was also skeptical because you were talking about the Poconos, you were talking about buying property or properties a bunch of different places, and you were trying to narrow down where you would go. And I just thought that, you know, being a landlord is a lot of work, and the market's kind of crazy, and you don't really know how things are going to go, and interest rates are up. And I, I just – I had some concerns about the plan, but you were nevertheless, I guess, checking out some real estate up in Cape Cod, and? Uh, we actually had a meeting last night with a uh, financial advisor, and he advised us to not – buy, especially right now. Also, did you know when you're buying a second home, when you're taking a mortgage out on not your primary residence, the mortgage rates are higher. We did not know that. So um, he just- That's a different ballgame. Yeah, I didn't didn't know that. So he really recommended us not to do that anytime soon. So So you're telling me I am now not only your uncompensated, unlicensed- Therapist, I'm now also your uncompensated, unlicensed financial planner, yeah, or at least financial right. advisor. Well, can you say that again? Apparently, you were right. Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure that was crystal clear, no crosstalk on the record. Although you've been forced to say that any number of times, it's just good to sort of be building up the win streak, so to speak. All right. Well, you're back. You're here at the show until you're gone to uh, Tahiti, I guess, for most of September, I think it was. <laughs> Uh, So we're very glad to have you back for these fleeting few days where you'll be doing some work. And are you glad to be back? Do you start to itch after a while? Like, you know, there's there's guests I need to be badgering and texting and calling at all hours. And the golf course is only so fulfilling. Well, I want to let you know, I did work on the golf course. I was one of those people. So I was, uh, yeah, I was tracking down some people that I felt like we hadn't had in a while. And it was just getting a little... Not cool for me. I wanted to make sure mm. we definitely got them. I was getting a little angry. Not angry, oh. but, you know. Boy, 
We've got an angry day drinking cookie on the links. Be careful. With some She's golf gonna clubs. Murder. She's going to murder some golf balls. <laughs> Oh, the cookie never sleeps, especially when she's on the warpath for booking. But all joking aside, we are glad to have you back, although the joking will continue, of course. Back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show, same time, same place. Glad to have you all along. Hope to talk to you then. Have a great night, and as always, thank you for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.